Amen. Y'all excited about Christmas being next week? Y'all excited about that? Hey, two weeks? Ain't it next week? Y'all always try to act like I don't know dates. You trying to clown me? Y'all may be right. Let me check my phone. But, um, you know, but what was interesting, as excited as we are about Christmas, one of the things that we, that we recognize is we don't realize that even though, you know, Christmas didn't necessarily happen this part of the year, we celebrate it anyway because we celebrate our Lord. What's interesting about Christmas is we don't, we forget that Jesus came because there was a conflict. As beautiful as that atmosphere was, we three kings of Orient even though the song needs some tweaking theologically, um, but it's interesting the way we deal with that night, angels singing and guys coming bringing gifts, a baby's born, it was because of a conflict. And you know, as I, as I grow as a Christian, one of the things that I'm learning is that God is, I mean, I know we know this, one of the things I'm learning is God is committed to us looking like, like Jesus no matter what. He's more committed to Jesus in our life than he is happiness in our life. <laughs> he will make you look like Jesus if you have to be made uncomfortable. And uh, most of the time, if you're honest, the process that it takes to look like Jesus is <laughs> pretty uncomfortable. But what's so powerful about God is that he's, so, he's committed to himself, and because of his commitment to himself, it makes him committed to us. See, sometimes we think God's love is absence of something about him. But because he likes the way he looks, he's been looking in the mirror for eternity. So he loves the way he looks. He just doesn't like the way we look. So therefore, he's provided a way for us to get uh, not plastic surgery, but brand spanking newness, which we're going to talk about today a little bit. And the, the message, I'm going to title it really untitled. I don't have a title today. But I do have a text. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. I'm going to read these verses and... As we walk through, and we're going to walk through these kind of line by line. I may not get through all of this because it's a lot. It's a lot in here. It's a lot. It's a lot of theology, a lot of nutrition, a lot for our practice, a lot for our souls. Verse 16, you're there, say amen. amen. All right, verse 16, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, are you in Christ? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold the what? Yes. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. 
we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a beefy passage. Oh, it's smoking beyond comprehension. And what's powerful about this passage is that it lets us know that the context is beautiful because it's interesting that in the part before it, it talks about the Bema seat. Now, what's, what's, what's beautiful about that is the Bema seat points to the goal. Now, there are two seats. Well, there's a seat and there's a throne. There's the great white throne of judgment, which is to judge people who, who have rejected Jesus Christ, who are unredeemed. But then there's the Bema seat that every Christian must stand before, and he's not judging whether or not we spend eternity with him, it's a reward-based judgment system. And so Paul sandwiches that before he talks to the Corinthians about um, his need to talk to them about some issues that he had with them that was between him and them. That's chapter 6. But sandwiched in between the Bema seat and their need to deal with some issues is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And, and, and this passage is mostly used to talk about individual Christianity. But this passage is quoted in the midst of conflict. In other words, this passage deeply teaches me that conflict is going to be inevitable. In the life of every individual Christian, there will be conflict. How many of you know that in your sanctified soul, that there's going to be conflict? You are wet behind the ears if you think it's not going to happen. My, my, my. You, listen. Don't have a honeymoon attitude about the Christian life. The Christian life, as beautiful and fun and enjoyable as it is, it's a rigorous, grimy life. And it's riddled with conflict. That's why we shouldn't be surprised by them. Not only will our individual Christian lives be riddled with conflict, but also our family lives will be riddled with conflict. Our relationship with friends will be riddled with conflict. And guess where else there'll be conflict? The church. Wow. No church is immune from conflict. I got some stats presented to me, and I think this is good for us as we work through the fact that Epiphany Fellowship, both corporately and individually, will experience conflict. Now, this, 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 these stats rocked me out of this world. Out of, now, I'm going to do two studies. I'm, I'm going to lay out two studies. First study was done by almost 3,000 churches. 3,000 congregations, and the center of it was conflict. It says 24% of those 3,000 churches experienced a conflict in the last two years that was serious enough to call a special meeting. It says 26% experienced a conflict in the last two years that resulted in people leaving their congregation. 9% experienced a conflict that led to leaders, that the leaders to leave the congregation. 7% were classified as persistently conflicted. So 7% of them say, we just keep going through stuff. Like, crazy, right? It says 35% of the congregations reporting conflict indicated that it was about clergy. 12% stated that their conflicts were about church leadership, which may or may not refer to clergy. 8% indicated that their conflicts were about money, loot, dinero. 48% of congregations surveyed and selected the, uh, selected the catch-all other category to describe it. And they said, we just got so much conflict, we don't even know how to describe it. 
So just lump us into, we're going through a lot. So 35, 35% is like, yo, it's just, we don't even know how to describe it. We're just in conflict, right? It says, one interesting finding about the congregations classified as persistently, com- uh, well, co- th- these are the ones that say we just persistently conflicted, is that accounted for 30 to four, 35 to 40% of all church conflict reported over the four-year period. Interesting, right? It gets even more interesting. Now, this is a study. This is a study of 19,000 churches. The next one. Now, this is mind-boggling. 25% of the churches within that 19,000 churches in one survey reported conflict in the previous five years that there was a serious enough conflict having lasted having a lasting impact on the life of the church forever. Listen to this. Only 2% of church conflict is about doctrinal issues. (laughs) 2% is about beliefs. So we find that, now we believe in beliefs here, so don't be fronting like, see, that's what I'm talking about. But, like, we, we believe in believing the right stuff about the Scriptures. However, it's interesting that the conflict wasn't even about doctrine, most of it. Then it says 98% of church conflict involved interpersonal issues, relationship issues. Control issues ranked as the most common cause of conflict. 85% of the 19,000 churches had to do with control issues. About 40% of church members who leave their churches leave because of conflict. That is interpersonal issues not doctrinal issues. Very small numbers, 16% of churches, report positive outcomes of conflict. 16% of 19,000 churches did not see a resolution to conflict at all. So, that's, that's crazy, right? Like, like that, that, so we're seeing, and, and I believe that that's not a quasi-experimental design, which we would call a controlled experiment. We believe that that's a micro of the macro. So, so, we, so we're saying that, yo, like this is probably true globally, that churches don't work through and deal with conflict well. And one of the things that we are concerned as elders is we want to make sure that we're able to deal with conflict well. And I'm hoping that Epiphany Fellowship will develop in the scale of conflict resolution and development in such a way that we're, like, like that we're willing to work through stuff. And I believe that this passage that we're in today is going to give us some clear guidelines that conflict is normal, but conflict is resolvable. <laughs> See, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful because of someone in particular, both his words and his works and his person. I'm convinced because God is su- he's such he's so not a punk that he's not afraid of conflict. And so in this text today, I, I, you know, y'all, I, I got three points today, y'all. Y'all clap. Y'all got to say clap. I got three points today. Y'all so crazy. But the thing I want to, in this entitled, unentitled message, I don't know if we want to call it conflict peacemakers. I don't know, but untitled. God, the first thing I want to talk about is God placed us in a peaceful position. Verse 17 is powerful. <clears throat> this is a heavily quoted passage. Let's look at this. It's a beautiful passage to quote. It says, therefore, if 
anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Powerful. That's a powerfully, I mean, I mean, we, 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 that's a greatly quoted passage. Now I want us to mine about this passage a little bit. I want us to dig into the, new, the nooks and crannies of this passage a little bit. Now what strikes me, which I wish I just could do a sermon series on it, is in Christ. Just, the, I, just that phrase. In Christ. You can do a series just on in Christ. It's a very rich prepositional phrase. In, in, in Christ produces and communicates a, a, a conglomerate of things that we can understand. But Paul is the coiner of this idiomatic expression that's used throughout his um, epistles to communicate three things in particular. Three things in particular. First is to talk about locality, instrumentality, and modality. Locality, instrumentality, and modality. I'm explaining it, baby boy. <laughs> so the first is locality. Say locality. <coughs> locality means the fact or condition of having a location in a space or time. A particular place or situation. A location. Say location. Instrumentality means that which is used for some intended purpose. In other words, a tool of some type. So you got location, you got a tool, and then you got modality. Modality means state. What mode you're in? A state. So being in Christ changes your location, changes your state, but it's also the instrument by which you're changed. So when it says, if any man be in Christ, it changes where you are local-wise. What do I mean by that? Jesus says, I am the door to the sheepfold. The sheepfold is an area or a place where God is blessing in a particular way. So he's not blessing through common, through common grace here, general grace, natural grace. Like the general grace, he lets the sun shine on the just and the unjust. But those who are in Christ get a specific space now, 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 the space is not necessarily corporeal space or physical space, but it's based on soul location by being smeared with his blood. So if you're in Christ, you're in a different location, even though you're in a different location. So, 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 so the bells can be in West Philly. You know what I'm saying? The Masons can be in Southwest Philly. The Kilpatricks can be in Northeast Philly. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, the Dunlaps can be in Jersey. And then, uh, but... Even though we are in different spaces in time, we're in the same space eternally. Because we're all in Christ, even though we're in Philly, but in different parts of the Philly or the region. So when it talks about being in Christ, it is a location, but it's also, it's also the instrument by which we were placed in him. It's through him. But then the, the, the mode is the, not just us being placed in the location, but us changed and placed in the location. So what's powerful about being in Christ, when it says, if anyone is in Christ, this is what it means to be in Christ, to have your location changed, to have been used by a tool using itself to change how you locate and then the state that you're in. One, one guy said, Christ is understood as the defining sphere. He said, Christ and no other is God's instrument for raising humans from the dead. Just as death comes but through Adam alone, so life comes through Jesus Christ alone. So again, we see this whole idea of God is not doing anything outside of Jesus. Anything that is redemptively done, 
Redemptive means when God gets things back to his original design and order. God does not do anything outside of Jesus. So if you're trying to operate practically outside of that sphere, even though you're located in that sphere, even though you're in Christ, your operation is outside of it. And so God is only working and doing stuff in Jesus. Nowhere else is he doing anything else. And all of this is going to be important information as we meditate theologically on what it's going to mean to resolve conflict. Now, and this, Paul, is, Paul is such a theologian, but what's funny about Paul is he gives you highfalutin theology, and then he gives you practical nooks and crannies. And so, and so, and so, and so we see here that, that this beauty of being located in Christ makes you something different. Now he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Wow. Now I want you to med- meditate on this. Now this is, this is bombastic. You were recreated. Just, just think about that. You were recreated all over again. See, God doesn't remix music videos and songs. See, because to remix something means you use the original material to create something better. God said, I can't use the original material. So I have to crucify the original material. I have to erase it as non-existent and create a new track and a new video material. That's what's so banging about God. God is, I mean, think about it. You were recreated. Now, see, y'all don't appreciate it yet because you got to understand creation. See, recreation has to do with even though we're still being recreated because before this it talked about we're getting new skin. And bone, we're not going to have blood. Y'all didn't know that, did y'all? Talk about that when we get to the eschatology series. But we're only going to be flesh and bone and then animated by the new, the new humanity. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so fly to me. We ain't going to need blood. You're going to get cut. It's going to be like, oh, you know. It's just going to seal back up, you know. It's crazy. I just like to talk about the newness. But, but this new creation, this idea of new creation is, God, this is what he did. He placed his affection on you without you wanting him. He said, there's nothing you can do to merit me, but everything I can do, I can merit you. So I will buy you by works alone. For me, it's works. For you, it's faith alone. Because I don't need faith because I can do it. So I don't have to believe anything. Y'all missed that. So, so, so... So, so, so what he does is he says, he goes into, you, into your esophagus and pull out the old spirit and heart. Now, if he would have left you like that, you would have died. But what he did is he removed the old spirit out of you, removed the heart of stone out of you, surgery. And then he, he did mouth to mouth all over again, <laughs> re-blew life back in you. And you became animated all over again. You were recreated. New ability to think like him. New ability to like him now. Now you like him. Love him. And, you, and, and then he took your will out of bondage. So now you could choose right. See, but see, some of y'all say, well, I ain't smoke. I ain't drink. I would, but see, see. You see how sinful you are? 
Because you're saying what you didn't do based on a list of sins, but the fact that you're naming what you didn't do shows that you're prideful, therefore you're a sinner. <laughs> Clackadokie. See? <laughs> and so when we talk about this idea of new creation, he totally starts everything over for us. Now, what's beautiful about new creation, right, is that the human being being redeemed is the first fruits of all eternity being changed. But he started with us because it started with us. See, the mess started with us. In order to transform it around, he had to start. See, creation responds to what God does in us. That's why creation is moaning to be changed. Because the, new, the sons of God now exist. Dang, y'all missing it all. So new creation points to creation for redemption. This is creation, of course, pre-fall. Fallen creation, post-fall, new creation, post-cross. <laughs> so, uh, so now we're new creation. So God in Christ seeks to create something more significant. When he says new creation, God isn't taking us back to Eden. God likes to outdo himself. <laughs> He's so fly. He's so extravagant. And salvation was the most extravagant work of God. And so he said, I, he said, even though I, I was, he said, even though I said that was good, he said, I made this. He said, dang, look at your boy. You know, that's good. Look at, he looking back. Oh, oh, the sun, pow, sun coming to his head. He said, moon, moon, just plinking. He said, water, click. He, just, oh, he said, look at me. He just chilling for like six days, having fun. Like he's having a three person, one essence party for six days, just talking up creation to exist. Knowing that if that was me, I would have just went new eternal. See, God went through creating creation, but he's going to recreate creation, Second Peter chapter 3. Everything's going to be new. Uh, too much to talk about right now. But he's making, us, he's making things better. So not, be, so not because he made an error in, in the first creation, but seeks to show his glory off in a more extravagant, extravagant way in Christ. So God did not remix. We said that. So this was prophesied, of course, in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. So, but sanctification through trials is also the process of recreation, and we will get new bodies as the eternal consummation of this. I can't wait to wear mine. We're going to hold it beside each other. Me and Brother Paul will be like this. Look at yours. It's going to look tight. I wonder if we're going to have skin watches. How are we going to tell time? Well, it's going to be eternity, so we won't need that. Crazy. Anyway, that's crazy. No more watches. See, that's another one we got to add to the repertoire, preachers. No more watches. However, there is a sense in which God's new creative work is definitive and final, although incomplete. Now, incomplete doesn't mean deficient. It just means to be continued. So he says, he says, he says if any man is in Christ, he has a new location. He has a new instrument, and he has a new state. So if he's in Christ, he's a new creation, so everything is new, right? But he says the old has passed away. That means Adam's stuff passes away. That means your identity in Adam passes away. Now, this is what's funny. <coughs> Behold, all things have become new or are becoming new. All things are becoming new. Has become new is a perfect active indicative pointing to a new set of of standards and attitudes that has come to stay so that a person is now to be judged in a completely new light. 
So what's interesting is the way God judges us has changed. Even though he still will judge us. Ah. So again, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. So there's this sense of already not yet. Say already not yet. See, my southern folk will say already. Already not yet. So what's interesting is already means that God has already started working something. Not yet means that it's going to be fully realized later. So when God talks about the already not yet, what happens is, is although you are in Christ, new creation, all of that, you still have an old body. You still live on planet Earth. He said, dang, I was all in heaven, eschaton, thinking about Jesus and his flesh. Now you bring me back to North Philly. Okay. And so, and so, and so what's crazy is, is now we have to exist in this tension. And now there's going to be conflict. Why? Because you are a new creation in a non-new created environment. And you're not as new as you're going to be. So you're a mess too, partially. So you thought because you was a new creation, you wasn't a mess still. That's why we have sanctification. Therefore, God has to deal, God has, God deals with this idea and, and works us through our conflict. Next point, that's why God has provided peace with us. Oh, in order to understand the peace, you gotta understand the beef. So, 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 so verse 18, it says, all this is from God. What's from God? Being in Christ, being a new creation, old things pass away, new things coming, right? It says, all this is from God who, although Christ reconciled who through Christ reconciled um, us to himself. I like that. Now, before I unpack reconciled, you got to understand that being in Christ is about a relationship with God, not about getting stuff. Um, Heaven would be pretty boring without him. Riding sickles around in in heaven, you know, like this on, on the streets of Golden carrying on and no God being there. It's pretty boring. Cat skateboarding and carrying on through heaven. What's up? Like, it'd be boring. But the thing that makes heaven heaven is God. That's why he reconciles us to himself. So that means God deals with conflict. And he deals with it head on. He doesn't punk out. Wow. He's not scared of what is uh, uh, what is in the way of that reconciliation taking place? So let's talk about this idea of reconciliation. I want to talk about reconciliation and I want to talk about restoration because they're kind of different. Um, they're, they're, they're different even though they're cousins. Let, you already, let's talk about reconciliation. Is that okay? Let's talk about it. So he said he's reconciled us to himself in Christ, right? Now, reconciliation here is interesting. It means the exchange of hostility for friendly relationship. Wow. It signifies, first of all, the recognition of God with the world, expressing God's initial change of heart towards sinners. Now, God's essence didn't change, but he changed bringing his wrath and holiness and justice on us and was able to lavish us with grace and mercy. The problem is not rightly addressed by questioning whether the unchanging God ever changes his mind. 
The situation rather is one where an altered relationship now exists between God and sinners by Christ's interposing sacrifice on the behalf of fallen mankind. So the point of reconciliation is that God, for Christ's sake, now feels towards sinners as though they had never offended him. The reconciliation is complete and perfect, covering mankind both extensively, it's comprehensive, and intensively exhaustive. That is all sinners and all sin. So when we talk about reconciliation, sin was the barrier and our nature and our propensity towards sin and our, our will being on lockdown was the barrier. And so what God does is he unchains us from sin, carrying us around like a fugitive. And so reconciliation does that work. And so, and so when we look at this idea of reconciliation, God is not only removing the barrier, because if God removed the barrier that was between us, he would have knocked us out. But he changed us and removed the barrier so that we could shake hands and crown each other's shoulder. He's so loving that he prepared us to be in his face. I'm glad I'm prepared. That's why it says, blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection. So let's look at some statements on the nature of reconciliation. This idea, because see, when you look in the verses, verse 18 has reconciled twice. <coughs> Reconcile, reconciliation, verse 19, reconciling. End of verse 19, reconciliation. And in verse 20, reconciled. Reconcile. And so when we talk about reconciliation, it's the cause of rupture between God and sinners as now seen being healed, a truly holy independent, uh, independent of humanity's mood or attitude. While sinners were still the object of God's just wrath, Christ, in full harmony with the gracious will of the Heavenly Father, interposed himself for our sakes for the restoration of harmony. So basic is the truth that without objection, reconciliation, without reconciliation, there is no thought of salvation, regeneration, faith, or Christian life. The initiative in reconciliation is moreover all on God's side. Through his word, the gospel, God reveals to sinners that he is fully reconciled with them because of Christ. This is very important that we really understand the depth of reconciliation and what this idea means. So reconciliation took place not by God's exercising of divine fire or decree of power, but through Christ interposing himself as the people's surrogate or substitute before the law's condemnation. So God didn't say we're okay and saved us. Like he has to deal with what is making us not be in relationship. So he's not passive. He said, come on, and let's just let's just hang together. Like like that's the like most people want the God who doesn't talk to them about their mess. <clears throat> See, that's what most people want. And that's people that's not going to deal with conflict well. And since God is not a punk and he's not passive. He deals with our sin head on through the cross of Christ. And so reconciliation primarily has to do with 
the reconciliation of relationships between God and man or man and man. So God reconciles the world to himself. So that's why it means that's why that's why this is so deep, because God, when we, with, with this idea of reconciliation and given this opportunity for reconciliation is God demands that we be reconciled. You'll see him say later, he says, we adjure you on behalf of God. Be reconciled to God. Right. And, 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 and so this idea of reconciliation is beautiful. But let's talk about restoration. Now, restoration is a little different. <clears throat> Because reconciliation has to do with removing barriers. <coughs> restoration is different. To restore, the word restore literally means to mend. Now, now when, when re- restoration is different because reconciliation deals with the barrier that causes people not to be in community or relationship with one another. Whereas restoration is the, is the means that makes reconciliation possible, practical, and real. Restoration is, the, is used when Jesus came to his disciples, it says, and they were mending their nets. Now, mending their nets meant that they had, of course, been catching fish, and, 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 they, and so the, the pieces of the net got broken. And there was a lot of scales and fish eyes and tails and fins all caught in, um, in, in, the, um, in the net. And so what they were doing is after they had finished fishing, in order that they may have viable fishing all over again, what they did was they sat down and they meticulously went through a huge net. Some nets can be big as is this room. And they had to meticulously go through the net and restitch parts of the broken net back together and remove and clean everything that would get in the way of the net coming fully apart and opening up to catch more fish. That's what restoration is. See, restoration is the, is the, is the grunt work of cleaning souls. Reconciliation is possible and real when people have been worked on by God in restoring them and mending chopped up trifling pieces of them and removing the barrier so that when there's a coming together, there is some type of renewal that happened that makes the reconciliation real. It's powerful. You can't have, you can't have reconciliation with, uh, with, with no repentance, because restoration points to repentance having had happened, so that when there's coming together, there's repentance on our behalf towards one another. So reasons why churches don't respond well to conflict is because we don't repent. We don't admit when we're wrong, and we don't admit we need to be worked on, so the gook stays there. And then you ask for reconciliation, but it's impossible. That's why every time you get together, you need a mediator. Are we about to, would you, come on, what? I heard a church is cast pulling out guns on Sunday. Come on, pop, pop, like, like they on boys. Pop, pop. Yo, that's crazy. Yo, that's, that's. Yo, that's, that's crazy to me. Cast fist fighting. Fist fighting on, on. Around communion, like robbing and weaving around the communion table. So about some, I'm, I'm like, that. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm like, hold up, what, what, what's, what's the breakdown here, right? But the reason why, one of the things we have to be willing to do is Paul is giving and laying the groundwork theologically, because he's talking about the depth of where we were, 
the power of the holiness of God, that the, the weight of the barrier, and how God dealt with us head on in our relationship with him. Because in chapter 6, he's going to now challenge them to apply that same gospel in him being reconciled to them as, as, as Christians. And so restoration is very important, but without it in our relationships, it's going to be a problem. So that's why you see, that's why you see him saying in the latter part of this verse, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. <clears throat> that's powerful. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That means that we are supposed to be about the work of gospel ministry. Now, in the context specifically, he's talking about evangelism of sinners. So specifically in the context, he's saying, listen, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation of serving people and engaging them with the nutrition of the gospel. That's why he says, we ha- later he'll say, we have the message of reconciliation. But the message of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation both go hand in hand. Now, it's both word and deed. Both word and deed. So message of reconciliation, the gospel, ministry of reconciliation, practice of what it means. Like, like, so that means that there has to be confrontation. Who shares the gospel with anyone like this? I wonder... Uh, what you say? You say, Jesus, you're waiting for the sinner to initiate asking you to tell them about the gospel. See how dumb that sounds? Like that's probably not going to happen. Somebody says, oh, what must I do to be saved with nothing? Like there's a reason why the guy said that. They were singing song, gospel-centered songs in the jail and sharing the gospel with them. Then he got scared and said, what must I do to be saved? Because he'd already heard. So it ain't like he's the Holy Ghost. What must I do to be saved? You know, it, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. So, so, so there has to be some type of, see, the ministry of reconciliation is the ministry of dealing with conflict. See, the ministry of reconciliation is a gift from God to help us to deal with each other. <laughs> it's a ministry. It needs, like, it's a ministry of the church that everybody's a part of that ministry. Everybody. You ain't even got signed up for it. You got saved and was automatically signed up for, for, for that ministry by the Holy Ghost. He said, you're a part of this ministry. He said, children's ministry, go ahead and do that. I want you to do that. Sound, all that. He said, but there's one everybody's in. And every Christian signed up for reconciliation. And so that means if God has made way for peace, and who, like, what, what relationship was more broken than the relationship between God and man? Think about that. I want us to meditate on that. What was more broken? It was broken for years. Years. What relationships that broken? Where God has to kill humans over and over and over to say, I'm sick of y'all. For years it was broken. Then he finally said, dang, if you want something right, you got to do it yourself. So he said, I'm going to come down and I'm going to face you. I'm going to become human. I'm going to walk around and smell y'all. Look at your face. And hang out with you and confront you for three straight years. It's crazy. And, do, and I'm going to die, and many of y'all won't believe in, in me, period. But then many of you won't believe in me until I die. Matter of fact, my own crew going to dip. But he still faces the conflict, even though he knows in the eyes of some his mission would be a failure. 
but he still initiated contact because he loves us. And so how in the world, if God deals with conflict like that, don't we deal with some little punk conflicts between us? <laughs> how, how are we going to deal with that? The gospel demands that we as a church, we are going to go through regular seasons of pain. I'm just telling you, this year was rugged. Next year, I, I ain't promising that in 2010 we're going to get our blend or whatever. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? In 2010, we're going to be free. I don't know what it's going to be. In 2011, we're going to party like we're in heaven. I don't know what it's going to be like. But all I'm saying is, we're going to have conflict next year. We're going to have conflict, what's today's date? Between the 13th and the 31st, there's going to be some conflict. Now, the question ain't, is it going to be conflict? Pastor Larry, is it going to be conflict? Yes, it's going to be conflict. The question, Pastor Larry, ain't going to be conflict. Pastor Doug, Pastor Kerr, Pastor, is it going to be conflict? The question is, how are we going to deal with it? You heard them churches. There's a graveyard. Churches are, most churches become graveyards in dead places because they don't deal with conflict. Everything gets pulled up on the carpet and swept up under there, and we act like nothing's happened. Then we go in our small groups and in our Sunday school classes and on the phone and gossip about the conflict, and they come back to church and deal with each other as if we like each other, but we were just talking about them. Huh? But, but the cross already resolved the conflict. Already. Now we got to use it and carry it. That means it's going to hurt. That means you're going to get some splinters. It's an old rugged cross. It's going to splinter. You stick it in. I don't know if you ever had splinters. So I grew up in one of them houses where we didn't take care of our wood floors. Y'all know nothing about that. I'm sliding across. Ah! A piece of the floor just peeled off in my toe. Had to go get a tetanus shot. It was so deep. See, we're going to deal with this thing real, real. We're going to have to face issues. That means we got to stop talking about each other and face each other. We've we got we to stop doing it. We want, I, I want real Christianity. I don't know about you. I want, I want real, authentic Christianity. If you got something against somebody, go get them. Talk to them. And I'm going to talk about, in the future, we're going to talk about the levels of confrontation. But you've got to confront. And you've got to deal with issues. Because your soul will never be right, and God won't let your spiritual life move on until you deal with it. Now, the issue you got to pray for is your funky, nasty attitude. Because you can't go in trying to be right. Well, see, what, what I notice about you. <laughs> so you ain't even going in right. Now, Jesus ain't down the cross like that. Did he down the cross? Come on. See, see how dirty they are, God? Just nail me on here. Get me back to heaven. Like, he had a, he had a meek attitude. For, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, I, mean, I, I would have been cussing people out on the cross. I'm, I mean, I don't mean no harm. Soon as they, soon as I would have seen the first nail, I'd have saw that joint. 
What you about to do with that, homie? Um, I'd be starting, I'd just say, oh, man, I'd renounce everything. You know what I'm saying? But Jesus, he, he laid there, and he was, he's God, so he had a beef with us. And he has wrath because he's God. And he was angry at us while on the cross, but didn't apply his anger to us. He didn't apply his anger. Ah, you need to have your hands lifted. He, listen, he didn't even apply it. And he took, now see, he took the nail, not here, but here. Because hand was from the top of your fingers to your elbow in their culture. So that, that's where key things are. And they, bang! I'd have passed out. I just died at that moment. But Jesus sovereignly, God sovereignly kept Jesus in his body past the point of normal death. He was already beat down when he got there. I had more to say, but I'm going to stay right here. He had, see, he got his skin stripped. With anger, righteous anger. Now, he had righteous anger and didn't apply righteous anger. Righteous holiness, righteous justice, and had charges against us. And he put them aside and put them on himself. Now, you got to understand, he is God, so he know what God's wrath is like. So what he does is he says, God, punish me for them. And so we talk about the ministry of reconciliation. It means getting on a cross. I've hated this season of reconciliation. I've hated it. Because I think in my own little mind, I got the right to go on with my life. And what God will do is he'll booby trap your behind. You'll think you're moving forward and he'll snatch you 20 steps backwards. And you're like, what's happening? You praying, still spending time in the world, worshiping, praising, crying. God says, <laughs> You're just ignoring me, huh? I'm going to do something else. And it just keep happening. Then when you deal with it, something happens. So when he gives us the ministry of reconciliation, he gives us it as a ministry for evangelism and edification. We like reconciliation for evangelism because, it, oh, that's between God and you. But see, edificational reconciliation has to do with us and one another. And so now we got to apply it because... Things ain't going to be right fellowship-wise with us and God if we don't deal with one another. Let me move on. So finally, I'm shutting it down. Verse 19 through 21. God provided peace for us. I already said that, right? Yeah. He provided peace. But now God wants us. It's interesting. God, God's people must be peace practitioners. It's interesting. He says, therefore, in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. 
Ambassador. This is an interesting way they use ambassadors back then. An ambassador was a representative of one state, state to another, not country, but state, usually applied in this period to the emperor's delegates to the east. Now, this is what's interesting. Paul is using the word interestingly um, in the context of plea for reconciliation. Paul, as an ambassador, urges the Corinthians to make peace with God, the king. Emperors normally took action against unrepentant clients, states that had offended them, and no one took such warnings lightly. So this warning, warning, be reconciled, be reconciled. One of the things we need to do is we need to be gracious in calling one another to reconciliation in our relationship. That's why the Bible says, take no account of a wrong suffered. That's hard. But what it's saying is, is don't apply the hurt that you felt from the wrong to the way you relate to your brother or sister in Christ. Because if God, do you know if God, even while we in Christ, still applied to us everything we've done? Not, I ain't even talking about BC because everybody's talking about what I used to do. I'm talking about since AD. Since you in Christ, we'd have been just brutalized by God. And so he, he says something beautiful that I think is beautiful application for reconciliation. I'm going to sit down. He says in verse 21. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin. Stop. (laughs) He made him guilty as a way to make us not guilty. Look at the level of God's confrontation. It's not that he's ignoring that there's sin. He just says, I'll take the L in order for us to be in relationship. (laughs) I'll take the L. See, many of us feel like we got a right. I, I, got, I got a right to be. I got a right. I got, yeah, yeah, you got a right. That's the problem. And many times a right is a wrong turn. He says, who knew no sin so that in him, to, he said, um, he made, for, for, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, there it is again, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this idea of transferal, I don't understand why it's controversial. It's called vicarious atonement. I like that. Vicarious atonement. Vicarious is Latin word. It means one in the place of another. It says the death of Christ is vicarious in the sense that Christ is the substitute who bears the punishment rightly due sinners. I'll be wrong, even though I know you're wrong, so that we can be in relationship. They're being, they're, he said, I will be injected with your guilt. And we got injected with his righteousness. So that takes us back to our definition from last week. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement refers to the doctrine that Christ died on the cross as a substitution for sinners. God imputed the guilt of our sins to Christ and he, in our place, for the punishment that we deserve. This was a full payment for sins which satisfied both the wrath of God and the righteousness of God so that purpose he could forgive sinners without compromising his holy standard. So reconciliation must be done 
without compromise. So that means while we walk through reconciliation with one another, we can't compromise the holiness of God. We can't compromise. So, because Jesus said, I can't compromise or this sacrifice is null and void. But he said, I have to do this right. <laughs> we got to do it right, y'all. We're going to have conflict and we need to learn. We need to learn now, this time, this time. The conflicts that we've gone through this year need to point you to your need, not pointing fingers. And then saying, God, this is a test for us. It's a test. Are you going to apply the gospel or not? What you going to do? Are you going to ignore it? And then I make you become a stat? Or are you going to fight through every single weed so that I may be glorified? God is most pleased when we fight for it. We fight for it. That he'll work other things out. But we got to make sure by his providence. He does things. But we, on our behalf, have to go towards this idea of the beauty of reconciliation. Husbands, be reconciled to your wife. Wife, be reconciled to your husband. Friend, be reconciled to friend. Parent, be reconciled, reconciled to child. You see, some of you all grew up in homes where people didn't deal with issues. People gave gifts in the place of confession and repentance. Somebody left you so you don't trust nobody. So you've gotten used to passivity in relationships. And that has been unredemptively brought into your relationship with God when now you ignore everything. You use humor to overlook stuff. All types of things. See, we got, we, we're so messed up. <laughs> but what's beautiful about being messed up in Christ is that He works us to his goal. But he doesn't work us to that goal with us ignoring everything. And so I pray that we become a real Christian church. And that people not only see us when we look spotless. Notice I use look. Because now we don't look spotless no more. But now we gotta be known by God, through Christ, as those who face hell head on. Let's do it, y'all. Let's face it. Let's face our sin and face the sins of one another. Every head bow, every eye closed.